Well, I would like to tell you to turn to a certain place in your Bible, but we're going to be turning in a lot of different places in the Scriptures tonight. Uh, this morning we were, we were looking at the doctrine of faith, and specifically a faithful life, and the, made the distinction between that and justifying faith. There's several different uses of the word faith in Scripture, as we noted. Uh, there's the, the historical faith, which is just a belief in God and the Bible. It's not a saving faith. It's the faith that demons have. There is uh, the doctrine of faith, a set of doctrines that we believe. We, we contend for the faith. That's speaking of a set of doctrines. Uh, there is living a faithful life, a living faith, an abiding faith that, that accompanies us. And that's what the, the author of Hebrews was dealing with in, in chapter 11, verse 1. And then there's justifying faith. And there's a distinction between those two. And I want to look at the, the doctrine of justification tonight. I, a number of weeks ago, on a Wednesday night, I said, if you, if you want to catch someone in their theology and, and to see if they're a false teacher, just ask their view of justification. What is their view of justification? And if there's a faulty view of justification, if there's any other view of justification other than what the church has confessed since the Reformation, then they have abandoned the gospel. Justification is the very heart of the gospel. And a misstep here actually leaves one, leaves the gospel, and leads one into entering into a works-based salvation. Yet how we are justified, and justification is one of the most basic questions of life. Consider Job 9.2. How can a man be right before God? That is a question of how can I be justified before a holy God? How to be justified by God, who is righteous. Justification is the hinge upon which the church stands or falls, as Luther says. In a systematic theology... A series of lectures, really, a collection of lectures called a synopsis of a pure theology. The authors of that said this, Justification is the foremost locus in theology. And for the most salutary, without a sound doctrine of justification, other doctrines cannot be sound either, nor will it be possible to maintain a true church. Think of the weight of that statement of those theologians of Leiden responding after they had written the canons of Dort. They said it is the locus of theology. What is, what is justification? It's a legal declaration on God that we are just. It includes both pardon and an imputation of Christ's rightness, righteousness. So, how do we discuss this tonight? I just want to ask the Baptist Catechism questions the same as the, the Westminster Smaller Catechism, exact same wording. What is justification? It's number 36 in the Baptist Catechism. The answer is this. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That is the, the standard answer of what justification is and how we are justified by God is by faith alone. The first sentence of this or the first clause of this is simply this, justification is an act of God. 
And that is the basis of everything that we understand that separates the idea of justification by faith alone from works. It is an act of God. In chapter 8, verse 33 of Romans, Paul writes this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God is the one who justifies, and God is the one who condemns. So justification is an act of God's decision. God is the cause of our justification. He is the lawgiver. He is Lord. He is the judge. Thus, he is the only one, is the only righteous one who can forgive and justify. And so when we think of justification, justification, we start with this fact. Justification is an act of God for it is God who justifies, as Paul says. We also want to see, though, justification in terms of God who justifies us. We want to see that it is an act of our triune God. Remember, our triune God acts as one. The Father, we are seeing in verse 33 of chapter 8 of Romans, it is God. That is speaking of the Father. It is the Father who brings justification. But in Isaiah, in chapter 53... In verse 11, we read these words. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. So who is it that makes us to be accounted righteous? Well, we would say it's the Son. But then you see in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 6, in verse 11... And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Justification is an act of the triune God. You could think of it this way. The Father justifies in the Son through the Spirit. Father justifies in the Son through the Spirit. The next thing we see is this is justification is an act of God, but it's an act of God's free grace. There's nothing that merits this grace. There's nothing by which we're able to earn this grace, but it is God's free grace. That's why it's qualified with free. Titus chapter 3, verse 7, so that being justified by His grace. The key point is free grace. Which means this is there is there is no constraint upon God to justify anyone except his own determined will to justify a people. His own will is immutable, his eternal will that is unchanging and is compelled by nothing but his own good pleasure. That is his free grace. But from our end, there's nothing that we have done to earn it. If there was or there was something that God saw in us by which we would receive justification, then God himself can't be eternal. He would have to be uh, part of time. Does justification include our works? Well, we've seen the answer is, is clearly no, but just to make it even clearer, Do I bring anything to the table? Let me just put it that way. To be declared by God as just in His sight. Is there anything that I contribute to my salvation? 
Paul writes this, but it is by, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The idea of being saved by a living faith or confusing our walk with the idea of salvation then places our perseverance in our own hands. To quote the pure theology again, they wrote this, and so while our justification comes by a faith that is not apart from works, yet it is apart from works that we are justified. So is there any works that that contribute? Is there anything that we contribute to our justification? No. In answering this question, in the 1700s, there was a Baptist minister named Benjamin Bedham. And he wrote a very interesting commentary on the on the catechism. And it's an interesting commentary because most commentaries are just that, commentary. But his is called a scriptural exposition of the catechism. And what is fascinating about how Bedom writes this commentary is he gives the catechism question, what is justification? Gives the, the, the answer that's written there. And then he asks a series of questions and he doesn't answer the questions. He allows God to answer each question. And so it's truly a scriptural exposition. It's truly God's exposition of the catechism. What what does God have to say about these various questions? And so he begins to to ask several questions. And we're just simply looking at many of these questions he asks and looking at the answers that God himself provides. So does justification include our works? What does God say? No. Does justification include anything that I do? Does justification include my willing mind of my own merit? Does the imputation of righteousness, though, because it's not based upon what I do, does the imputation of righteousness impact how we live our life? If you are justified by faith in Christ, you are now in union with Christ. Christ has given you his very righteousness. Does that impact how you live your life? We better say yes. It says this in the London Confession. They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, have a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. Notice what it says, through Christ's death and resurrection, we have a new spirit, we have a new heart, and are also farther sanctified. Sanctification is growing. We are growing really and personally through the same virtue. What is that same virtue? The righteousness of Christ. So we think of this as that in Christ, we have a new mind, we have a new spirit, we have a new heart, we have this new disposition, but there's something even more significant, that, and that is this, is Christ has given us His righteousness. Does that have an impact on the believer? Yes. 
And so when we see someone has a justifying faith, does that result in a faith that is, say, living and abiding and continues throughout their life? Is there a change in the person? There has to be. And so while we can say that justifying faith results in a change, we can't equate the change with justification. Our union with Christ, being in Christ, is the source of our sanctification. Now, if we get that wrong, and we've been talking about this a lot lately, if we get this wrong, consider all the problems with that. What's included with our justification? This is a question of Bedom. He asks, well, what's included with our justification? Well, he says it's a forgiveness of sins. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, which is according to his grace. We experience the very power of God in changing our life through justification. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, our justification is an act of God, but what we see is an act of God's authority and power. We see that it is an experience of God's grace. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, which says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. What a wonderful truth that we receive in our justification is not only a forgiveness, but then God says, they're, they're out of my mind now. They're no longer present. We see it's an act of, of justice. In 1 John chapter 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's acceptance with God. In Ephesians 1.6, says this, To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Do you think about those words that we are in the Beloved? Think of the marvelous truth of a justification by God's act of His free grace. That we're accepted in God. We're accepted by God in Christ through justification. You think about the implications of that for what it's like to go through life where you experience rejections and you experience letdown. Notice what the text says is that by God's grace, He has blessed us in His Beloved. He has blessed us in His Son, in whom we will never be separated from. But there's something else, is that actually, in our justification, our works now are actually accepted. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 4, we see this interesting verse. It says, And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Do you think about 
the works that you do? You stand before God as justified on account of Christ's righteousness. And you ever, you ever wonder, does whatever I do actually matter? Because we read about the negative aspect of works and that there's nothing we can do to contribute to our salvation and we say amen to that and that, that is absolutely true. But then when we come to faith in Christ, we were actually created to do what? Good works. Do our, do our good works actually mean something? Well, notice what it says of, of Abel and his bringing and it was, God had regard for it. God accepted it. In other words, by faith and through faith and because of justification, the work we do, the Lord has regard for it. Now, we can't make a mistake and think that our mind and our motivations have to be perfect because they're always intertwined with sin. Because we're, we're, we're fallen people. But the truth of it is, is that God accepts our works, not as the basis of anything that contributes to our salvation, not as the basis of keeping us in salvation, but because he has created us for that very purpose, and he has regard for those things. So notice the question again, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, where he pardons all our sins and accepteth us, as righteous in his sight. Righteous in his sight. So we go back to that idea of work. Why are we know our works that, that, that we bring to the table, even on our best day, even when we are most like Abel in presenting the first of the crop, we still know that they fall short. Why is it then that we could be counted righteous before God? Are we justified only for the righteousness of Christ? Are we justified, another way to ask it, only because of Christ's righteousness? Think about what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Paul speaks of his his biography of, of why, if anyone deserved to be considered righteous, it was him. He says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But Notice what he goes on to say. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him. And here's the key. He's already said, as far as the law was concerned in righteousness, I was blameless. And he says this, not having a righteousness of my own. Have no righteous. So how can we be counted as righteous before a holy God when the apostle Paul couldn't be? He says, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, or that is through faith. So he's speaking of a righteousness not his own. Did Christ 
fulfill all of the law? Was Christ perfect? Well, think of what it says. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Christ was perfect to the Heavenly Father and the will of the Heavenly Father without one flaw. Christ fulfilled all of the law. Christ fulfilled all that we couldn't do. Christ was truly righteous. And Christ's obedience is part of our justifying righteousness. When we think of Christ's obedience, think of it in two, two ways. And they're connected. There's Christ's passive obedience, where Christ comes under the curse of the law. He gets spit upon by men. There's Christ's active obedience. That's where his actively obedient to the law. Christ was perfectly passively obedient, and Christ was perfectly active obedient. Christ was perfect. He committed no sin, nor was there guile found in his mouth. Christ fulfills the law perfectly, and so Christ's obedience is actually our obedience. Christ's perfect perfection before the law is our perfection before the law. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 and verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's, listen, here it is, obedience, the many will be made righteous. So how am I made righteous? Well, by Christ's righteousness. Notice what it says. In Adam, we're all made sinners. In Adam, we're all alienated before God and under the just wrath of God. In Adam, we we inherit a sinful nature. But in Christ, we actually are made righteous and His obedience becomes our obedience. His perfection passively and actively and however we want to articulate His obedience to the will of the Father is now our obedience. That's the only way we could be made righteous is if we were as perfect as Christ. And we're not as perfect as Christ. Christ has to give us his perfection. This is why the author of Hebrews says, in Christ you are made perfect. Is Christ's righteousness satisfactory, satisfactory for God and sufficient for us? Is that enough? For us to be righteous before God. Did, is Christ efficient? And was his righteousness enough? It says this in Isaiah 42, 21. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. The Lord was pleased in his anointed one. So yes, his righteousness was enough before a holy God, but the question then is, is it sufficient? Is it efficient for us? We read this in Romans chapter 5, verse 21, So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Is Christ's righteousness sufficient for us? Think of it another way. You think about you are intimately familiar with your life and your sinful experiences. You, know, you, 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 if you think of it like this, is it's Christ's 
righteousness uh, compared to mine. That's, that's not what it is. And he, he has more righteousness than me, and so it overwhelms my, righteous, my unrighteousness. That's not what it is. That's not what justification is. What we actually see is that our unrighteousness leaves us and is imputed to Christ on the cross, and Christ's righteousness is given to us. It's not a matter of a skill. And that's glorious news. If not, we would constantly be stressing and wondering, did, did I sin so much that Christ's righteousness, I outweighed Christ's righteousness? Not that that would be possible. But we have to understand it correctly. It's our unrighteousness that goes to the cross, and it's His righteousness that is applied to us, that is given to us. And is this righteousness by ours by imputation? And that word imputation, it means this. To compare it in another sense, it's not infused. So if you imagine infusion would be like this, you take a, a dirty glass of water and you pour some clean water in there and you mix the clean water with the, the dirty water. That's infusion. But what do you still have at the end of the day? You just have still dirty water. What, infu- what imputation is, is that dirty water is dumped out and drained and clean and all the clean water is imputed in. That's what righteousness by imputation is. In fact, Paul writes of this several times in Romans. In chapter 4, in verse 3, he says this, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In verse 6, it says this, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts, or credits, or imputes. I think the King James says imputes righteousness apart from works. That credited means to, or to, to count is to impute. If we confuse that idea of imputation with infusion, we're actually confusing it with our sanctification process. Because if it, if it was just a simple matter of infusing some of Christ's righteousness with us, then we would actually see that we're not righteous. Justification is because Christ's righteousness, and it is by His righteousness, and it is through His righteousness. Now, what is the instrument of receiving righteousness What is it that we have to receive this righteousness? How do we receive this righteousness of Christ? Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, verse 16, that it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So how is one justified? By God's grace through faith. And only by those things. They're alone. There's nothing added to it. And as we think of faith itself, faith is not a form of work. In other words, I can't rest my salvation on my faith. 
I can't rest my justification upon my faith. My justification has to rest upon the righteousness of Christ. Otherwise, what have I done? If the basis of my salvation is my faith, I've now contributed something. That is why faith is the empty hand that receives Christ, that trusts on Christ, that accepts Christ. Faith itself is a grace. And because it's a grace, it's not something that we, we, we do. Yes, you have to believe. God doesn't believe for you. You're called to believe. Jesus has come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We are to come. We are to believe. But why? Because something precedes faith, and that what precedes faith is being born again. And by grace, we have faith. And God uses that faith to apply the righteousness of Christ to us. And let me, let me ask a question that Bedom doesn't ask, but I'll ask. Can we say for certain that faith is a grace of God? Well, God says so, yes. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Faith. That instrument, notice the word through. That's speaking of the instrument which God uses to apply the righteousness of Christ. It's faith is the instrument. He goes on to say, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. In Philippians, in chapter 1 and verse 29, it says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Notice what, what Paul's saying. It's been granted to you to believe. Over and over again in the book of Acts, the, the, the apostles are shocked and say, It has been granted by God that the Gentiles should repent. It has been granted by God that the Gentiles believe. Is faith the grace of God? Yes. Faith is by God's grace. Again, God doesn't believe for us, but we cannot believe apart from that grace. And why is that? Because we're dead in the sins and trespasses of this world. That's a doctrine of justification, but what, is it, what does it mean for our Christian life? Does this expression of justification bring us comfort in this life? Let me show you a few reasons why it should bring us comfort. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the greatest comfort you can have. Because when you close your eyes for the last time and you breathe your last breath you can breathe it with the confidence that you are at peace with God through faith because you have received the righteousness of Christ. And now you can rest assured. Does that bring us comfort? Does this expression of justification and how justification there is, is given, does this destroy any pride and bring humility to the believer? Does the doctrine of justification destroy our pride 
And does it actually call us to walk in humility? Think about what Paul writes. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. There's there's nothing I can pat myself on the back for and say, I can pat myself on the back for this. It is by God's grace and God's grace alone. And when I stand before God, and why should I let you into my heaven? You shouldn't. It is only by your grace. I can't say to God, well, there's, I, I did these things in the name of Christ. I preached a lot of sermons. I help people. No, there's no boasting before God. And so it actually is something, the doctrine, a correct doctrine of justification strips our pride away and calls us to live humbly before God. Does this doctrine motivate us and drive us to live holy lives? You think about what Paul's says to Timothy where he says this, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Does the doctrine of justification lead us and drive us and motivate us to live holy lives? Absolutely does. Another question that is relevant for our daily living and how we prioritize things in life. Does this expression result in praise? Does this expression of justification, as we've seen it articulated through the scriptures, does it result in praise in our life? So does it does it strip away pride? Yes. Does it motivate us to live holy lives? Yes. But does it result in praise? Notice what Isaiah 61 verse 10 says. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For, the word for is telling us the reason why. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Notice what Isaiah says is the doctrine of justification, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, leads us to praise and worship of God. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The doctrine of justification should drive us to worship, to praise God continually. There's a couple of things. If we get this wrong... And I think it's, getting, it's, it's being got wrong by a lot of people. Salvation is impossible before a holy God apart from the doctrine of justification through faith alone. Salvation is impossible. This is, this is why Paul says that any that depart from the gospel, let them be anathematized, let them be cursed. Paul says to the church of Galatians. Why? Because the Judaizers were adding works to the gospel message. They were saying, we're saved by faith plus some things. 
Salvation is utterly impossible apart from this. We are hopeless and pitiful people deserving hell and will get hell apart from a God that by grace justifies an unrighteous people. But there's something else is to get this wrong is to destroy assurance of faith. It destroys our assurance, and the Scriptures make it very clear that we can know that we are saved. The Scriptures make it clear that that we can know that we are adopted sons of God because the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are indeed, and we may cry out, Abba, Father, why? Because we can have assurance of faith that we're saved. But if you destroy the doctrine of justification and how we are justified before God, you cannot have assurance, but you will always wonder, did I do enough? Your salvation will become dependent on how well you do, and the Christian life will be a continual life of uncertainty of whether you have salvation in Christ or not. You will continually do things in order to receive salvation, and you won't be able to keep it. You think about Martin Luther and the famous story of how he would go before the priest and confess all of his sins for hours, and then he would walk away and go, oh, I forgot a sin, and he would come back and say what that sin was, and then he would walk away, oh, I forgot another sin. That would be our life. If we truly understood the righteousness of God as Luther did, that would be our life. We would never have enough time for confession. But there's something else in this as we rob Christ of his glory and grace and salvation by claiming some end in ourselves. In other words, we take away from the very glory that Christ deserves for what he did in his accomplished works. We say it wasn't accomplished, really. And we rob Christ of his glory. We we exalt ourselves in place of Christ if we get the doctrine of justification wrong. And we make salvation ultimately rest on our shoulders, and our shoulders just are not strong enough to bear the weight of sin. How important is the doctrine of justification? Well, it seems like when you read the New Testament, you can't escape the doctrine of justification being everywhere. I I don't think it's an exaggeration when the Reformers said it was the very hinge upon which the church stands or falls. You get rid of the doctrine of justification and you cannot maintain a church. Justification is just not a fancy theological word. It's a word that God gives us in His Word for us to consider, to contemplate, to wrestle with, and to come to an understanding of it. The the doctrine of justification is just not a scholarly, ivy, tower type of made-up doctrine, but it is actually from the pages of God's Word that He has given us to wrestle with, to understand, and to ultimately be blessed in. Let us cling to this doctrine. We are declared righteous in God's sight by the righteousness of Christ, not our own righteousness, by imputation, by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, for God's glory alone. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great grace to us. How can one stand as justified in your sight only by the righteousness of Christ, only by your free grace, 
by which you pardon our sins and give us the very righteousness of your Son. Father, we praise you for such mercy that you have on your people. I pray that, Father, this doctrine of justification would become alive in our hearts and then we would cling to the truth of your words that we would cling to the truth of Christ's righteousness and that Father when we begin to doubt the wonderful gift of salvation may we not look to see how good our works were but may we look to see how good the work of Christ was on our behalf and may we cling to him We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand and take your hymns of grace and turn to hymn 48. 